One of the uh, greatest uh, movies of all time, in my humble yet accurate opinion, <laughs> is uh, uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it's this movie about this uh, soldier by the name of James Ryan, who's serving with his three brothers in World War II, and his three brothers all die in battle. And the military decides that instead of risking having to send a fourth son home to this poor mother in a body bag that they wanna get him out of there. And so they send a small platoon of soldiers led by none other than Tom Hanks uh, to go find Private Ryan somewhere in this theater of battle and, and to get him home. Now, uh, I, I hate to ruin the movie if you haven't seen it, and yet at the same time, I also wanna point out that it's been 25 years, all right? So <laughs> where have you been? Uh, but I think something like, you know, maybe all but one of the soldiers uh, ends up dying. They give their lives trying to save a man that they had no relationship with. And the second to the last scene of the movie, Tom Hanks is taking his final breaths on the battlefield, and he grabs James Ryan, played by Matt Damon, and he pulls him close, and he reminds him of the tremendous sacrifice that has been made to get him home. And then he says these two words that, in my opinion, are both touching and really kind of terrible at the same time. Uh, he says these words, earn this, earn this. You, you know what he's saying? He's saying, you, you better go home and you better live a really, really good life. Like, you better go home and find a cure for cancer. You know, you better go home and serve ice cream to little kids. You better go home and save baby pandas. You know, I don't know. It's like, you better do something uh, to earn the sacrifice that has been made on your behalf. I mean, can you just imagine the amount of pressure that that would have been like? Fast forward, uh, very last scene of the movie, uh, 40 or 50 years into the future, and James Ryan is an old man. And he's visiting a cemetery in the graves of the soldiers who gave their lives so that he could live. And he's got his wife and his kids and his grandkids with him. He's lived a full life. And he has kind of like this emotional breakdown at the gravesite. And he turns to his wife and he asks this like really haunting question. Am I a good person? Like, did I really earn this? And it's a moving scene, but at the same time, you can just kind of feel this burden, like this weight that has been placed on his shoulders. You know that question would have been in the back of his mind throughout these decades of his life. And really what he's asking is, is the life I've lived worthy of the sacrifice they made? Now, at the very end of Philippians 1, where we left off last week, in verses 27 and 28, I just want to point this out. Paul writes something that we, I think, would all have to acknowledge sounds similar, like at least on the surface. And Ryan did a great job covering these verses. I just kind of want to go back and remind us of what Paul said. Paul writes these words, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but this is essentially what he wrote. He goes, I want you to live your lives worthy of the good news about Christ. Now, what's he saying? Is he saying something very similar that Tom Hanks said to Matt Damon? Is he saying, you know, uh, you know, you need to earn this. You need to earn the life that Jesus died for you to live. And I just want to go ahead and answer that question very clearly. Uh, unequivocally, the answer to that would be no. Like, you don't need to earn the sacrifice Jesus died for you to have. 
Uh, Saving Private Ryan is about five guys who didn't have any relationship with James Ryan at all. They didn't know him from Adam. They were simply following orders. And by the way, they really weren't happy about it either. The gospel message, as Paul explains it so well in his letter to the Philippians, is not that Jesus was you know, following orders. Now he was on a rescue mission, but it wasn't that he was like following orders and he came to rescue people he really didn't know or care for, and so he did so begrudgingly. The gospel message is that Jesus knows you intimately and he loves you so much that he chose it. Like he chose, like nobody took his life. He willingly laid it down. And so when Paul says to us through that phrase in, in chapter one, you know, is he saying, you know, hey, live a life worthy of the gospel? Is he saying we need to, to, to earn this? Well, well, no. Uh, for starters, worthy does not mean deserving. Like you and I could never, ever deserve it. Like, no, I know there's a big emphasis nowadays, you know, kind of on like, hey, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just sincerely believe it. And as long as you don't hurt anybody, just follow your own path and, and just be a good person. But who defines good? Because oftentimes whenever we look at what somebody thinks is good, others say that, well, that's bad. So, and in fact, the Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah would even say that all of our acts, like you just take your whole life, however long you've got on this planet, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and you used to amass all the good things that you can manage to do, pile it all up. The prophet Isaiah, in a very sobering way, says that all of that is like filthy rags. The debt's too high. No amount of effort could ever cover it. No, worthy does not mean deserving. Worthy means this, a right response. So when Paul says, hey, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's saying live your life as a right response to what Jesus has done. Well, what is a right response? Well, have any of you ever done something or said something to somebody else and you didn't get the response you were looking for? Yeah, I think we all have. It's like, you know, let's just say, you know, Christmas morning and the kids come downstairs in their pajamas and you're like, hey guys, guess what? You know, the Christmas gift is uh, we're all going to Disney. You know, get in the limo outside. We're going to visit Mickey. And, uh, and, and a, the response you're, you're, you wouldn't be looking for is if they act all disappointed and they're like, oh, we were kind of hoping we'd go to Holiday World. You know, it's like, <laughs> no offense to the Holiday World fans, all right? But, but that's not the response you're looking for. Fellas, fellas, like let's just say you meet Miss Perfect and you've been dating and she's gorgeous and she's just the woman of your dreams and you're like, she's the one and six months into dating, you work up the courage to say those three little words first. I love you, baby. <laughs> Add a fourth word in there and, and the response she gives you is thanks. Right, that's not, I, I think the response you're looking for so this is what Paul's driving at at the end of chapter one. He's like, hey, a, a right response to what Jesus has done. So when he says, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, here's what he's saying. Uh, in light of what Jesus has done for you, in light of the sacrifice that he's made, our right response should be the way that we live our entire lives. Like it's the way I spend my time. It's the way I handle conflict with difficult people. It's the way I view my bank account and resources and gift set. It's, it's, it's as Ryan covered last week, it's how I see problems and pain. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm responding to what has been done on my behalf. So in light of what Jesus has done to save my life, how should that change the way that I see 
everything. And that pretty much sums up the entire message of the book of Philippians. Now, if you're just now joining us, whether in person or online, we have been studying through this letter in the New Testament called Philippians. We're halfway through. All right, so we're five weeks into a 10-week series, so it's not too late for you to jump in. And hopefully you brought your guidebook and you've been following along. And I hope that the studies continue to be uh, enriching. You know, one of the things I've noticed is when we do a series longer than five weeks, it starts off with a lot of momentum. And then, you know, just human nature, the momentum, momentum begins to kind of wane. And I'm kind of hoping that we maybe kind of pick back the momentum here as we enter into chapter two. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter two. We're gonna walk our way through 11 verses in chapter two. And as we've been saying uh, since the beginning of the series, Philippians is Paul's joy letter, which is ironic given the fact that he was chained to a prison guard as he wrote these words about joy. And that would have been pretty miserable. Like you probably, I mean, you, he's close enough that he could have smelled his bad breath and B.O., you know, and yet he's writing about joy. Personally, very convicting for me because I wrote at least part of this message on an airplane in which the person sitting next to me kept fighting me for the armrest and I wasn't very joyful about it. <laughs> and so Paul, what he does is he just kind of, he, he, what he's doing is it, joy is not some sort of like, you know, naive optimism. You know, it's like, well, I know, you know, life just stinks, but you know, I'm going to be joyful. That, that's not what it is. Joy is a response, not a task. Joy is a response to what Jesus has done for us. Now, as we come into chapter two, I just want to point this out. Um, uh, most, most of our New Testament is really letters that Paul wrote. So it's letters that Paul wrote to just regular people like you and me uh, who are trying to live out their faith in Jesus in the midst of a very hostile, joyless society. So Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, all those were just letters to the churches in those cities. And uh, Paul was a church planner and he was a pastor. And so he had all kinds of churches that he had relationships with. In my opinion, the church in Philippi was his favorite. Now I know we're not supposed to have favorites, or at least admit out loud that we do. But we do, right? You've got a favorite barista. You've got a favorite waitress. You've got a favorite preacher. You just keep that to yourself. I don't want to hear it, all right? You know, we've got a favorite kid. You know, we know we shouldn't have favorite. We do, we do, right? Uh, and uh, we, we, we just, and Paul had a favorite church, you know? I mean, some churches were really problem churches. The church in Corinth was just a mess. You know, this letter to the Philippians was one letter, four chapters long. It required two letters to the Corinthian church. I point that out to say, this is his favorite church. Like they had probably the most kind of together and yet there were still problems. I just wanna point that out. Uh, Swiss theologian Karl Barth said it this way. He said, the letters to the churches in the New Testament sprung out of the problems found within those churches. Meaning that like uh, the reason why Paul wrote the letter was because they weren't perfect. If you're looking for a perfect church, you will never find it. If you happen to find it, don't go, you'll mess it up. And so will I. And so that's the thing is that Paul just kind of writes to address the problems and that's what he's gonna do here. He's not just like, you know, cheering the Philippians on. He's going, he loves them so much to confront them in their sin. And that's the balance that we try to cover like every week is that this isn't just a rah-rah session, you know, rah-rah, like live your best life, like kind of a thing. It also isn't just like a come down on you hard session. This is truth and grace. This is good news and bad news in every message because it's in that tension where we find life transformation. And this is what Paul's going to do. Now, now here's, here's really kind of the question that we're gonna address in the text today is uh, what is it that was keeping them from cultivating joy 
and what is it that was taking their eyes off of what Jesus had tasked them to do, like the purpose of their life in, in Philippi. And so I've got three things out of this passage as we walk through it. If you wanna take notes, here's the first one. It's just simply this. Joy stops when division starts. Joy stops when division starts. And so Paul starts in, in verse one of chapter two with just a series of questions. Listen to the questions. He, he writes to them, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? So this is just a, a series of questions, bullet point style. And, and honestly, I think that we're, here's how Paul intends for it to come across. They're just rhetorical questions. They are um, questions meant for their own kind of personal um, reflection time. You know, they're taking their guidebooks in early morning with a cup of coffee and they're just kind of thinking through these questions. Uh, here's what he's doing. He's trying to remind them of their experience of grace. How many of you have ever had the phone app on your phone just randomly send you a notification indicating, hey, here's a series of pictures of memories. And you're just kind of like, you know, going through your life, kind of you're in a meeting or you're running errands, all of a sudden, gee, you know, it just comes up like memories from 2017. And it's that trip, it's that experience, it's that holiday that you'd forgotten about. And I don't know about you guys, but every now and then I'm like, well, this looks interesting. And I click on it. And by the end of it, like I'm in tears. And somebody's like, why are you crying? I'm like, no, it's the allergies. And, uh, and, and this, is, this is what Paul's doing with these series of questions. Is he's, he's, he's getting ready to confront them in their sin, but what he does is he, he takes them back and he says, I just wanna ask you, like, do you remember where you were and who you were when Jesus radically changed your life? Like, do you remember what you were rescued from? Now keep in mind, this letter comes about 25 years after Jesus' resurrection. And so this is a relatively like new, this, these are like first generation Christians. And so they would have remembered like there was no church kids in this group. Like they grew up pagans. And he's like, yeah, yeah. The, the, the rhetorical answer to his rhetorical question would have been, yeah, yeah, we, we remember how messed up we were. We remember that back alley that Jesus found us in. Like we remember our experience of grace. And he's like, all right, verse two. Now that you remember, then make me truly happy I think the NIV translates it more accurately by saying, make my joy complete by agreeing wholeheartedly. Uh, once again, the NIV translates it a bit different. It says, be like-minded with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. I think it's really important to point out if you're new to Bible study, that the Bible was written to communities rather than individuals. Oftentimes we read it as an individual when we should be reading it as a community. Now this doesn't mean that there isn't any application for our individual lives, there is. I'm just saying the Bible was written to we rather than me. And Paul writes this to a community of faith. He's writing this to a church. In other words, the application doesn't fully land if we don't realize the, the one another's here and how this is affecting our uh, horizontal relationships with other people. This is what Paul is trying to point out. Now, when he says, hey, would you make me happy by 
agreeing with each other, loving, with e- loving each other, and working together with one in mind and one, in part, one purpose. What do you think is happening in this church? There was some sort of disagreement going on. Imagine that. Like they had a congregational meeting that just went off the rails. You know, they, they were disagreeing about music and programs and colors of carpet and all the, all the fun things. You know, there, there was some division that was beginning to seep into this church. And Paul was hearing about it. And now, now here's the thing. When, when it comes to like strained relationships, isn't that just the worst? Any of you like right now in, in, embroiled in some sort of conflict with somebody? Now it's one thing to have somebody like honk at you in traffic and you have no relationship. You can kind of brush that off real quickly. But when you've got somebody in your life that you really love and care about and now there's some sort of division, there's some sort of conflict, there's some sort of impasse. That affects us greatly. The quality of our life is really dependent upon the quality of our relationships. When your relationships are unified and healthy and fruitful and intimate, then life is good. But when relationships begin to fall apart, when there's division of some kind, it affects the quality of our lives. And this is what was happening within the church. And this is the reason why there's so much church division. And oftentimes, maybe even in your own past right now, maybe you've got some sort of church hurt. And this is why Paul says here, be like-minded and love each other and work together in one mind and purpose. The term like-minded is a big deal to Paul. He actually brings it up 10 times in four chapters of Philippians. When you read through all of his letters in the New Testament, he mentions it 23 times. So this idea of unity, of being like-minded, like it's a big theme for Paul. And so we got to ask ourselves, okay, what does that mean and what does it not mean? Now, it does not mean that we are going to agree on every single subject. Like, that, that's just impossible. Like, you get, you know, more than two people into a room, they're going to have differences of opinion. It does not mean that we should be identical in lifestyle, in appearance, in personality, or in age, It means that all of us come together, different generations, different ethnicities, different perspectives, different walks of life, different socioeconomic, and we come together in this this community of faith that Jesus died for us to have. And it's not uniformity where everybody just kind of looks, talks, acts the same, but it is unity within a wide range of diversity. And that is one of the fruits of the gospel message and the power of the Holy Spirit. So as a church, when we strive to be diverse, we are not trying to be politically correct. We are trying to be biblically obedient. We are trying to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ because he is the God of the nations. And it says that one day every tongue, tribe, and nation will come together and will sing to our heavenly Father in heaven. This should be dress rehearsal for eternity. If the church doesn't look like heaven, then something's wrong, all right? Now here's the thing. And I'm afraid that in our society, we don't hear that at all. And we begin to experience all this pressure from the outside. And he's writing to a church and he's saying, guys, guys, remember your aim. Remember your purpose here. The purpose is to uh, lift high the name of Jesus and move the gospel message forward. And they were beginning to forget that because their relationships were breaking down. So the church in Philippi, the whole reason why Paul writes this letter is because he and the church in Philippi were facing all of this external pressure from the society in which they lived. 
That's Satan's number one aim. We got a little touch of that a few years ago. When the fever pitch of society, when everything that was swirling around, pandemics and, and racial tension and, and political division and, and ec- economic downturns, all this pressure from the outside of the church, and it shook the church. And we went after each other and we, we were divided and, and, and that's Satan's number one play. Now he will try to get the church to water the truth down or to cave to external pressure. And if that doesn't work, then he'll go behind enemy lines and he'll try to stir up dissension from within. Satan is not a fan of unity. In fact, he adamantly opposes it and passionately hates it. And so Paul is writing to say, hey, remember who the real enemy is here and be unified around the mission and the purpose of Jesus. One of the things that I love about the fact that we are one church in multiple locations is because, uh, in fact, uh, many people have asked, like, hey, where have you been the last couple of weeks? I've been at our other campuses. And I've just been walking through, like uh, uh, hanging out in the lobby, uh, talking to people, ministering to people, praying to people. I love that. And one of the things that I love about visiting some of our other campuses is that the buildings all look very different. They're in different parts of our city. Uh, there's different sets of people coming to these campuses. But as I'm talking to them, I'm just, I'm just listening. Part of it is I just want to get a pulse on what God's doing in our church. I'm hearing a lot of the same things from different people. They're saying things like, man, God is, is like at work right now. Aaron, I've just recently like been released from this thing that I've just been wrestling with or I've just been pinned down in shame or uh, man, um, you know, the, the ministry of this church has just uh, radically changed my life. God, God is doing something. Lots of tears, lots of people returning to church, coming to church. There's something happening. And can I just even just kind of point this out that just in my like 15 years here, I've actually never seen our church more unified right now than it is right now. And I'm grateful for that. And, and here's the thing, uh, I, I know how fragile that is. Like I know trust can never be demanded. Trust has to be earned and maintained. And unity is really a supernatural work of the spirit. And right now, for whatever reason, God's hand is on us in that. And I want us to be attentive to that. I want us to recognize this doesn't mean that we'll all get along. It means that our eyes are fixed on Jesus and what it is that he's called us to do. And in the midst of a, of a very, very divided, hurting culture, it needs a healthy, unified, joyful church. And that can only come through this outpouring of the spirit of God. And we need to be praying for that and seeking that and asking for that. And so the second thing that I want you to write down out of this passage is that joy slips out the back when my ego steps up front. Look at what Paul writes in verse three. He says, he says hey guys, like, like don't be selfish. You know, this is part of what causes relationships to break down, isn't it? Just, you know, sort of selfishness on the inside. And he says, don't try to impress others. You know, I'd say most of us, we get on board with the selfish thing. Like none of us want to be selfish, but, but he also kind of attaches to this, like impressing other people. In other words, I care too much what other people think. And so that obviously like affects the way that I act and live and, and, and even the way that I interact in my relationships with other people. And he says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now, I know that's not a very popular thing to say. We don't hear that very often in our culture. So I just simply wanna ask you, how's that land on you? Like this idea, like think of others as better than yourselves. Hold that, we'll sort of come back to it in a minute. Verse four, he goes, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. 
Can I just say like how um, that just runs against the grain of the culture in which we live. We, we don't hear that. And it's really, really challenging. Most of the time, the culture says to us, you know, you need to speak up for yourself. You know, you, you need to get what's yours. You know, you, you need to use your voice. You know, in the, in the words of the great theologian, Katy Perry, I got the eye of the tiger. You're going to hear me roar, right? That's, that, that's, that's kind of the mantra by, by which we live. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here. Like most of the time, culture will talk about like self-advocacy and self-respect. And, and, and I'm, I'm for all those things. I'm not, I don't even think that what Paul writes here is diminishing any of those things. But, but isn't, isn't it true? Haven't you tasted this a bit in your life? Whether you, you know, are following God right now or not, have you ever just kind of noticed that when you make it all about you, then it, it just sort of like, it just gets missed on you. Like when I, try to, when I try to draw attention to myself, it's just never as good as when people just notice on their own. Like, I, like when I take the posture of a servant, it's more fulfilling than when I try to take the posture of, hey, look at me. There's something to that. Like, like Paul's simply saying, like he's not saying that you need to allow others to treat you like a doormat. He's saying, um, get, get, get your eyes off of yourself and actually look to the interests of others. Listen, um, I know that when I am really, really discouraged, then I need to go and I need to encourage others. And there's something that happens that when I encourage others, it's just this weird thing. I end up getting encouraged. It's this idea of like, I'm gonna take my eyes off of myself. I'm gonna stop navel gazing. I'm gonna look up and I'm gonna say, hey God, what, who is it that you wanna put into my path for me to serve? Now here's the thing. If anyone deserved to platform themselves, it would have been Jesus. But he said of himself, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus isn't just your savior. Jesus is our model. And so can I just say one of the things that I, I think has happened like in the, in the Western church, the thing that I think keeps the spirit of God sort of pinned down is this idea. I, I think it's maybe two things. Is that we, we really haven't released and, and repented of our sins. We really haven't let go of those things. We're still carrying them around. And we've read the Bible through the lens of me rather than we. And so we, we come to church and we, we maybe wonder, well, uh, you know, am I going to get anything out of it? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I want you to get something out of it. And it's not that you can't start with that question. It's that you can't stay with that question. And so if you just kind of become a part of a church with what am I going to get out of this, eventually, like eventually, you'll, you'll move on. You'll find something that you don't like. I mean, we are not a perfect church. There's all kinds of things around here that I don't like and wish we could do better, and half those things are my ideas. <laughs> it's just like, so, so understand, like, it is, it is not a, so, so here's the thing. We've got this little phrase in our conference room here in the lobby. It says, be the church you've always wanted to attend. It's this idea of ownership where we, we come together, and I've talked about this before, that I want you to have a spiritual bib when you come to one of our churches, meaning that prepare to, to be nourished by the word of God. Like, we'll work hard at that, but also I want you to come with a spiritual apron to serve. And oftentimes, we, we get those out of whack. 
I would say that what leads to burnout and even church hurt oftentimes is when we've got a lot of people that are just wearing the spiritual apron and they've just are run ragged, running on fumes and they're hurting. And if that's you, I, I just, and maybe you came to this church and you're like, I don't wanna be known. Aaron, I don't wanna meet you. I don't wanna jump in and serve. Like we just need to find a place to heal and be fed for a while. Can I just say, man, you are more than welcome here. You take all the time you need. You pull a seat up at the table, even if it's in the back and you just come and you just heal. Sometimes our church just needs to be a hospital for hurting and broken people. There are others of you though that, that all you've been wearing is a spiritual bib. Man, you're in like 14 different Bible studies. You listen to 21 different podcasts. You're, you know, you're just like, you know, I wish the teaching was deeper. And you're just like, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. And, and you're still not happy. And can I just say that um, maybe you need to take off the bib for a minute and put on an apron and begin to serve others. Why, because we need you? No, no. Because Jesus modeled that. Even Jesus himself said, hey, I've not come to be served, but to serve. And there's something about that. Like when you get, the eye, you get it, your eyes off of yourself and you begin to serve others. Like when you step onto campus and you're not just wondering, will somebody talk to me? But God, who do you wanna cross paths with me for me to talk to them and to actually serve and encourage them? God is doing something tremendous in our church right now that I'm so grateful for. Like, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but like since December, like we've just begun to grow like really fast. And there's like people, and it's not just about the growth, but it is about wanting to uh, serve more people. People are hurting and ho- hopeless. And, and, and right now, like we're beginning to feel a little bit of the pinch. And uh, I w- I, at multiple of our campuses, like um, it, it breaks my heart, but like we have to turn families away from kids ministry pretty much almost every weekend. And I hate that. Um, just because we just don't have enough difference makers in the room, people, people, people to serve. And uh, at, at our North Campus right now, they're feeling the pinch maybe more than anyone right now. Our North Campus has grown by 23% since the beginning of January. And, um, and it's uh, right now, like um, the parking lot is about as big as a postage stamp. And, um, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had to turn 30 cars away because there was no place to park. And so um, uh, all of our difference makers at North, at North like they, uh, here's what they've done. They've just gotten, they got a shuttle bus and now they've actually just expanded it to two shuttle buses. And they're asking a whole bunch of people with spiritual aprons on to go park at a parking lot uh, way down the road and get on a bus and ride in to leave as many parking spots for brand new people as possible. And I was there last weekend and they're doing it with joy. Like I was walking out the door with them. And they were all, you know, getting on the shuttle bus, you know, and they, they were joy. There was this like, and they were all just like, man, we're just so grateful for what God's doing in our church. There was just something about that that was just fulfilling when you serve. I read this last week about a conductor of a symphony orchestra who was once asked, hey, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And he responded this way, second violin. He goes, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find somebody who can play second violin with enthusiasm is a problem. But then he said this, but if we don't have a second violin, then we have no harmony. 
And can I just ask you, for some of you, like, are you willing to step up? Are you willing to serve? Not because we need to fill a position, but because God desires to do something in and through you to bless the lives of others. Here's the byproduct. You'll be encouraged and you'll be joyful. Can I just say this from my own experience? Like every, people ask me all the time, you still get nervous preaching? Every single time. And some Sundays I pull up and I'm like, you know, anytime I start to feel insecure about the message, which is often, and, and, and my, my flesh side starts to get in the way. Like I wonder, you know, is this gonna be good? You know, am I gonna get a lot of amens? You know, are they gonna like it? You know, all this kind of stuff. It, because I'm, I'm a human being. And, and usually what, what, what I have to do is shift my perspective to say, listen, I, I'm, I'm not performing, I'm serving. Like, I'm not here to impress you. I wanna help you and serve you. And, um, and try to do what I can to fan the flames of your faith, even if they're flickering. And in losing myself in that, I get encouraged. Here's the third thing, if you're taking notes. Joy is the result when Jesus is the aim. Joy is the result when Jesus is the aim. Now, in verses six through 11, I'm gonna read it, but Paul provides one of the clearest descriptions of who Jesus is and what he did in all of scripture. And uh, um, he's not introducing anything new. In fact, the way he writes this, a lot of theologians and historians believe that these uh, last few verses here, they were written in the syntax of a hymn. Meaning that this appears as if Paul was just writing back to them a hymn that they often sang together when they gathered to remind themselves of who Jesus was and what he did. And these are some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. Look at what he writes in verse five. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Well, what is that? Well, he describes it, verse six. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is what. Here's what that's saying to us is that uh, it's not just telling us uh, that Jesus looked like this or acted like this. It says that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. And God in the flesh took on the nature of a servant to pay the price so that you could step into a new identity. I remember reading a book when I was in college by a guy named John Stock called Basic Christianity. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, when people understood who Jesus was, they always had a strong reaction to him. They didn't, they didn't all love him, strong reaction. But you either despised him or you were changed by him but you were never indifferent towards him. And so those passages that, that Paul finishes up, you know, our text today with, shows us that because Jesus is 
God and not just some good moral teacher trying to, you know, give us some principles to live our lives by. This simply means because Jesus was who he said he was and because he died the death to give us, for us to step into this new identity, here's what this means. This means that you can change. It means that you can change because Jesus died for you, not just to be forgiven and to go to heaven one day when you die as like a good, you know, eternal life, life insurance policy. Jesus died this death so you could be set free. Now here's the thing that I think oftentimes holds the Western church back is that we get discipled by news media and other outlets and we're not discipled enough by the gospel and we all understand what it means to be forgiven by Jesus of our sins. But that does not mean that we have been set free. So we talk a lot about forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that we're free. And this is the reason why many of you, you know, you've gone for, throughout your whole lifetime, you know, you've gone forward at church camp multiple times. You've raised your hand. You filled out a commitment card. You've been baptized every single Easter for the past 12 years. You know, you're just like, I'm trying to re-up, you know, I'm trying to maintain, I'm trying to earn it. You know, I, I, I know I'm forgiven. I don't feel forgiven. It's the reason why some of you right now are just absolutely pinned down with shame. It's the reason why some of you, um, you didn't just get divorced, you feel like you are divorced. It's the reason why some of you, this addiction that got started when maybe you were a teenager and now it's just become this thing that you, you're nursing your own emotional woundedness with and you've become enslaved by it. There's a lot of us right now I feel that are probably hiding and you know what, I get it because we live in such a divided, harsh society that we're like, if I ever brought that thing out into the light, I would be canceled. And I want you to know that Jesus already knows and he nailed it to the cross. And here's the thing is that we keep putting him back up there because we're in bondage to this. So all throughout our lives, we just pick up baggage, you know, it's uh, little vices, things that have been said to us. Maybe your dad said something to you about your body and that's what started body image issues for you. Maybe you had a a babysitter and your parents really didn't know him very well, but he took advantage of you that one night. He said, if you ever say anything, then I'll destroy you. And you know, you've kept that, you've never actually told a soul about that. And what happens is that just becomes some baggage. And some of you, you, you're addicted to something and you've tried to break it. You've tried to break the cycle, but you can't. So you've just sort of given into it. Some of you have got this uh, secret that you've never brought into the light. You've never told anybody about it. And so what happens is, is we all just kind of come like walking through life and we can't lift our hands up. We can't focus on others, we, we're just so bogged down with all this baggage. And I just simply wanna ask you today, like, what's your baggage? What's the stuff that's just weighing you down? And I think the Spirit of God would say, well, like, why are you still holding on to that? Like, I, 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 Jesus paid the price for you to be set free from that. And the only way to be set free is to let go. 
I think it's amazing what's happening right now across all of our college campuses that started at Asbury over the last couple of weeks. It's, it's so encouraging. And, and uh, a few of our staff have gone down to actually see it. I, tr- I tried to get down. I could never break free to, to get down, but I watched the live stream of it. And I think it's incredible. And I'm encouraged by it. And I'm seeing it spread across college campuses. And yet at the same time, it's not like we you know, take some sort of pilgrimage down there to meet with the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, like the same Holy Spirit's in this room that was down there. And, uh, but what, what, keeps him, what keeps him held back? Um, a lack of repentance and a lack of reconciliation. In other words, when you've got your hands full of your baggage, there is no room for him to work. And so I just wanna ask you right now today, like we're just gonna end our time this way is what, did, what is it that you need to let go of and experience freedom? You, Jesus wants to forgive you, you've not been set free. So the way that you get set free is you just take that thing kicking and screaming out of the darkness and into the light. You just confess it before God, perhaps to someone else, and, and you, you just simply let go of it. <laughs> You just watch the baggage begin to come off. Some of you right now have been really divided with a family member. Maybe you're at odds with your spouse right now. You, you came to here today in separate cars because you're planning divorce. And I believe that the Spirit of God wants to reconcile that relationship. The, the Spirit of God will not outpour himself upon us if we are divided with one another. And so we need to let that go. We need to drop the bags one at a time. And here's the way that we do this, even just from the passage that Paul wrote. He said, hey, all, all tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. We'll bow before him. And so here it's just a, a symbolic of us uh, dropping the bags that are keeping us in bondage. Would you be willing, just at all of our locations, in just a posture of letting go, would you be willing to bow before your father? And literally by getting on your knees, and if you don't have any room in your aisle, you, you can, or in your seat, you can come out into the aisles. You can come down front around the stage. If you cannot get on your knees for health reasons, maybe you just take a seat and you just bow in a posture of prayer. But right now, if you uh, need to be released from an addiction that you are scared to death to confess to others, would you bow? Right now, if you are pinned down by your shame and you feel like your heavenly father like hates you, would you be willing to bow before him and just release the baggage? Like right now, if you're just hanging on by a thread and you, your mental health is, is not good, like would you just be willing to bow? Like, because when you bow, you're basically saying, God, I'm helpless, like I need you. I need you to enter in, I need you to come in. If you're divided right now with somebody that you need to be reconciled with, would you bow? Because maybe you've thrown counseling at it and you've thrown books at it and you've thrown conferences at it, but you've never invited him in. Would you be willing now just to begin to bow before our heavenly father? And here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna spend a few moments inviting the spirit of God to come in and do in this room what only he can do. As we just begin to bow, more and more people, I see people all over the room beginning just to bow. And I know that's weird, and I know that feels vulnerable, and I know you feel like everybody's looking at you. I promise you, nobody is looking at you because we're all in the same boat. We all need it. And we're just gonna spend a few moments doing this before we just begin to lift up our voices to God. Here's what I wanna ask. We oftentimes ask you to come down front to pray with a complete stranger. What if just circles of prayer begin to just kind of open up all over the room? We saw what happened at Asbury. There's no reason why that can't happen here. It's the same spirit of God. If we repent and we are reconciled and we let go of our baggage for what God might do. So God, we just come to you right now and in a posture 
of humility and repentance and prayer. God, we just fall to our knees, recognizing just how much we need you. And God, we are pinned down by so much baggage and shame that you're just unable to work. Your spirit's here, but our hands are full. And so God, would you help us to release that? I just pray that bags would drop all over the room, that we would confess our sins to you and to one another that we would choose to be reconciled by your Holy Spirit, that we would remember whose we are, that we would live a life worthy of the gospel, not to earn it or to maintain it, but to a right response to what you've done to set us free. And so God, I'm gonna stop talking and let you work in ways that only you can. Come Holy Spirit.